there is no reason that a healthy 34-year-old man should die. There's no reason that a child should die. There's no reason that, you know, any person should die before their time. And the more we assign reason to it and the more we try to intellectualize it, the worse off we are. I would just like finish whatever drink I had the night before and then go to the studio and bang out an episode. And it was like, it was almost like electric to me. Like I wasn't like drinking just to like be drunk, but I was like drinking so that I could have like a good show and not feel anything. And then I can get like the high from that, you know? And even now I'm like realizing it a lot. Like there is something externally that can be helped. And like understanding that, that like, in instead of saying like, ah, oh, this person's an alcoholic and, and shun them, we were quick to do that and not really think about the why, what's going on. Before we get into this episode, I should say that we are going to be talking about some heavy stuff surrounding addiction and substance abuse. And you know, death. I just want to put that warning out there. That said, I think that confronting whatever feelings you have about that stuff is, is also good. But I'm not a professional, and I'm in no position to say that. I'm also in no position to tell anybody how to deal with loss, because I'm still figuring out how to deal with what I'm dealing with, and don't take any of this as advice. Uh, we're just going to be sharing, I guess. Um, and make it an open forum for that. I should give some context because many people already know this in our little community that we've built, um, if you follow us on Instagram and things like that, but I'm sure many people don't. This past April, April 2nd, my brother Andrew passed away. Well, I'm not gonna say passed away. I don't like that word. And I should stop using that word to make other people feel more comfortable about the topic. On April 2nd, my brother Andrew died at the age of 34. For about two weeks before he died, he was on life support in the ICU. And his cause of death ultimately was liver and kidney failure uh, due to prolonged and excessive alcohol abuse. He was addicted to alcohol for a long time. And he did make a solid effort to try to quit drinking. And he was very open about the fact that he felt like he was drinking too much and he wanted to stop. The unfortunate reality though is that addiction is a disease. And when you have a disease like that, you can't just tell yourself to stop. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. It's just like when you have anxiety, you can't just tell yourself to stop being anxious. And so because of that, you know, I'm, I'm now grieving the loss of my brother. Um, six months to the day is going to be October 2nd. I mean, and that, that's what happened. I guess I'll introduce my co-host, Ronnie. How are you? I am doing okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's that been was a kind minute, of a heavy right? intro. I apologize. No, it's okay. I, I, getting back into the practice of this is very interesting because now it's like, okay, now, now it is, it, it has been my turn to speak. So I usually say, this is he, <laughs> and you already, I mean, not to jump into it, but yeah, I'm not going to jump into it. So I'm going to let you. No, go for it. Go for it. Well, just like, so me personally, I've been now working 
at a new job with like kids who have a lot of behavioral issues and emotions are a really interesting thing how they take over all like aspects of logic you know and just like all pretty much like you, you can't do a lot of things when you're emotionally weighed down you know it, it makes eating hard it makes a lot of the things that you need for like normal human life difficult because you can't really think about that because you're thinking about other things and it is really interesting to see just how like emotion can block so much like even i don't know like not 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 to say like there's a solution for everything but like it's easier to feel rather than to actually deal if that makes sense and so you can kind of like live in that space for so long that you ultimately get trapped into what we're talking about grief. I think like kind of what the author in the first book we're looking at was saying was there is no like, this is how grief works, but like nine times out of 10 people kind of get trapped into the cycle and it's just like natural emotions. Like it's very basic, you know, like the, the five stages and then we'll probably touch on the sixth one, but it's, it's a pattern that even if you were to say, okay, well maybe my grief doesn't take that pattern, it might end up taking that simple pattern that we're all pretty used to. So it's all about emotion. And I think people with anxiety know that a lot because they, they deal with it every day, like some form of it anyway. Yeah. And whatever anxiety you had before or didn't have before, when you go through any major trauma and grief is a trauma, a lot of things show up that weren't there before. I obviously can't talk about it in depth because of confidentiality reasons, but I'm in a grief support group for people who have lost siblings. And many of those people, at least from what they've shared, they've never struggled with mental health before. Um, They don't have, you know, any diagnosed thing. At least some of them don't. And for the first time in their life, they're experiencing a lot of feelings that I've experienced my whole life. And that's really difficult. And then for me, it's like I've experienced some form of major depression my entire life. And it's not to say that I'm used to it. It's not to say that I'm used to feeling this. But I I think that like, all the things that I was already, you know, dealing with, they just become more amplified. But to what Ronnie was saying, the book that he's referring to is called um, It's Okay That You're Not Okay by Megan Devine. And actually, one of our listeners recommended that book to me shortly after I said on Instagram that my brother had died. And that book has been a game changer for me, truly a game changer. So I immediately recommended that Ronnie read it so we can kind of understand, you know, what it is that I'm, where my head's at, I guess. And a lot of what that book talks about is the idea that there's pain in this world that is never fixed. It's only carried. And when I was reading that, it was like she took the words right out of my mouth, you know? And so I really appreciated that. So if, if you're experiencing any, any sort of grief, Um, from any type of death or major loss, or you have somebody in your life who is going through major loss, it could be helpful for you too. Um, She speaks to those people as well. She speaks to the people who are just trying to be an ally to someone going through this. And yeah, to what Ronnie said, it is all emotional. Um, And people try to assign logic to something that there is no logical explanation for. Regardless of what your belief system is, 
because a lot of that does come into play. But for me, at least, the way that I look at it and the way that Megan Devine looks at it is that there is no reason that a healthy 34-year-old man should die. There's no reason that a child should die. There's no reason that, you know, any person should die before their time. Mm -hmm. And the more we assign reason to it and the more we try to intellectualize it, the worse off we are. And that's really been my big takeaway through this is to not try to intellectualize it, which can be hard because we're searching for meaning in something that there is no meaning for. And that's a tough pill to swallow because if we find meaning in it, then we don't have to feel so bad about it. Um, but the reality is, is that you should feel bad. You should feel like shit because what happened to you is horrible. And there is no redemption arc for that. There is no fixing. You can't fix somebody dying. There's no one doing that, unfortunately. And the finality of death is something that I think we're all very afraid of because it's it's fucking final, you know, and it's terrifying. And that's why we have such a hard time accepting it. And I could go down the rabbit hole of how organized religion plays into that. But ultimately, why grieving can be so hard is because of just the finality of it. You know, there are a lot of problems that come up in your life where there's a solution to them. And this is one where there isn't. Whatever you didn't get to say or do before they died, there's no solution to that. You just have to make peace with it. And I am working towards making peace with it. But that's going to take a long time. And I've accepted that. I've accepted that I'm going to be grieving Andrew. My brother's name was Andrew. I don't know if I said that. Um, well, not his name was. His name is still Andrew, I guess. Um, that's another weird quirk about it is when do you start using past tense versus present tense and yeah. that whole thing. Um, but you know, I'll be grieving Andrew for the rest of my life. And that's that, you know. And again, like I said at the at the top, there's no advice here. There's no silver lining. There's no, hey, this is what you should do if you're going through this. Other than a book recommendation, I have nothing for you. Other than, you know, if you're going through this, that sucks, man. That really fucking sucks. And you don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. This didn't happen for a reason. There's no reason. But yeah, again, like to what you were saying, Ronnie, a lot of these like books on grief, not Megan Devine, but a lot of the other ones like the five stages and stuff it's it's trying to find some kind of logic in it where there isn't any because it is all emotional you know mm -hmm. i liked when when you brought up the finding meaning in somebody's passing because i i think i had a similar situation where my father lost his sister and he actually found the wrong meaning in her uh death and because it was due to covid he's he's gone deeper down the not anti-vax rabbit hole, but that that kind of niche group that's like Fauci's a bad dude because he he got all these people murdered, and it's like eh, it's not, you know. But I think even in that negative state, for those of you that don't know, Ronnie's dad is a he's a black Republican. Yeah, he was able to find meaning in that, and even if it's the wrong meaning, it's like it was a way for him to deal with it, and hopefully, he kind of finds a better meaning for his sister's passing. But I think that's probably like the biggest thing that we're struggling when we do have to face these issues. We have, we're struggling with finding that meaning, like why did this happen? And if there was a reason for it, we can, what the book was even alluding to is that it's like a little bit easier to stomach. Like the mother who started mad mothers against drunk driving, um, her child was killed due to a drunk driving incident and she started that program and it's I mean you know it's it's theoretically saved the lives of many people because you're getting the awareness about there out there about drunk driving 
so in that way there there's two different sides and it doesn't need to be like a big thing like you need to find meaning in the in this person's death to change the world but the meaning has to apply to you and i think we we experience that all the time too and i kind of shared that poem with you one art by elizabeth bishop that's right yeah it feels like a very the tone of the poem is very like manic you know like it's mm-hmm. It's like she she's searching for something like some sense of like stability, like meaning in this person's death. And you can tell that like they chose the first meaning they can find, which is that like losing things is cool because like as long as you get good at losing things, you'll never miss anybody ever again. You'll never be mad that you can't find your keys. You'll never be sad about moving to a new house, you know, like all these things, but it's like, in truth, you're going to hold on to all these things. And just to drop the emotion doesn't make it go away. You know, you got to find that meat, you got to at least drop it into, you know, the meaning for yourself. Yeah. But also, I mean, Megan Devine argues that finding the meaning is like, maybe it'll make you feel better, but it doesn't get you closer to acceptance. You know, it doesn't get you closer to making peace. It gives you another thing to put yourself into that's really just a distraction from feeling what you need to feel. It was almost like that was the quick, like, first step. Like, if you went through all the stages grief, at some point, you would hit this meaning and then there's a book about that. Yeah, called yeah. Finding Meanings. Yeah. And and even then, it's like a it's a continuous thing that like after that point, you still have to do work. And I think people think that like once you find that meaning, it's like, yes, but it's like that's kind of where the real positive work begins of like actually continuously dealing with this thing, you know? Yeah. But I I think um we have to di- differentiate meaning from reason. Mm. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like you can find meaning in it, but there, it, there's no reason. Oh, yeah. Trying to find the reason is is probably going to drive you, you insane. Yeah, it's it's not it's not feasible. Because there is none. I yeah. mean, it's like maybe you believe in God or a higher power or something like that, and you believe that there's meaning in all of this. But what I would say is that I think that's really just a coping mechanism and not a very good one at that. And again, not advice, just an opinion. It's just a way of pushing it down. And the hardest part about grief and the way that is probably at least what Megan Devine argues and what my personal therapist argues is that you have to just feel it all the way through and it's not gonna be fun. You just have to let it do its thing and run its course and feel everything you need to feel. One of my favorite things that Megan Devine writes in her book, and I'll have to pull up the quote maybe. Actually, I can probably remember it. She says that grief is not a sign that you're unwell or unevolved. It's a sign that love has been part of your life and that you want love to continue even here. Basically what she's saying is to grieve is to love. You loved this person when they're alive and you grieve them because you still love them. And to deny your grief or to push it aside is to not choose to love. And that sounds a little cheesy and usually something that I would vomit at. But I've become a little more sentimental these days. Um, And so I like that. But the hard truth is that, yeah, you do have to feel it all the way through. And maybe you do find meaning in it. But you have to understand that just because you find meaning doesn't mean that there's reason. And, you know, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole, like, right after. I mean, I experienced a lot of anger. And I still do. And I'm dealing with that anger. I have a lot of rage, actually. I'll be quite blunt, I have a lot of fucking rage about what happened here. And for a while I felt like there was, and I still do, and I'm trying to move past it, but I'm also trying to let myself feel my feelings too. It's a lot to juggle, but 
I felt like there was blood on a lot of people's hands and I wanted to hold other people responsible. And that's not, that's not right and not healthy and not really fair to anybody. Um, but in that anger, a lot of it came back to my own sobriety. My brother, Chris, he's been sober for several years. He also struggled with alcohol abuse. Alcohol abuse is something that runs deep, deep in our family. Substance abuse in general, actually. And so, you know, I, I've been sober from alcohol for a few years myself, too. And I just got very angry at, you know, people's insensitivity to sobriety. Um, there was this, God, and I can't, I can't go down this road, but uh, I'll just briefly say that there was a little bit of a of a schism, I guess, when we were planning the memorial, um, that Andrew's friends were wondering if they would be allowed to bring alcohol. Chris and I immediately said, absolutely not. It, it, to us, it was like if someone was murdered and you invited the murderer to the funeral, you know what I mean? Like, that's how it felt. Right. It's, it's a, it's in poor taste. It is in poor taste. Yeah. Chris and I got into these text threads where we were just foaming at the mouth, screaming and yelling, not at each other, but just about that people would be so insensitive to even suggest that alcohol would be allowed, you know? Mm -hmm. I wrote a whole manifesto about it. Uh, that will never see the light of day. I think I deleted it actually because it was embarrassing when I read it the next day. It was 3 a.m. I was in a hotel room alone, losing my fucking mind uh, and typing viciously. It was not, it was not good. I wrote a whole manifesto about why it would be so disrespectful and, and, I wrote down a list of rules for the memorial too, like a fucking insane, like funeral zilla. <laughs> and eventually we kind of just came to a point to where we're not going to say alcohol is banned, but we didn't provide any at the event. And that if people wanted to bring, you know, not hard alcohol, but like beer and wine or something just for their own personal consumption, that would be okay. We just ask that you be discreet about it because... Obviously, the, the nature of Andrew's death, um, my own sobriety, Chris's inactive recovery, you know, he's he's actively sober and has to work at it every day. I never had an alcohol addiction. He had an addiction. And it can be really triggering for him to be around alcohol. You know what happened? Nobody drank at that memorial. Because mm. I think they quickly figured out, you know, let's, this is not the fight to fight. And it also brought up a lot of things the conclusion that Chris and I ultimately came to was that, you know, he's our brother, but he's not just ours. We don't own him. He was a lot of things to a lot of people. And Andrew was a really, really good person. He had so many friends. I mean, over 100 people came to this memorial and had nothing but incredible, amazing, inspiring, you know, heartbreaking, wonderful stories about him, about the way that he just sacrificed so much of himself for other people. And we kind of realized eventually that we're not the only ones grieving him you know we don't own him um and I can't remember what my original point was oh right <laughs> that um the whole finding meaning thing you know I thought a lot about how I guess the way that we treat alcohol in our culture we talk a lot about the opioid epidemic we talk a lot about other drug epidemics Alcohol is one of those things where, because it's legal, you know, if you're over 21, you can just go to 7-Eleven and buy it, that we don't treat it the same. We don't have the same caution around it. We realize that people get addicted to it. We're too quick to be casual about it. We're too quick to brush it off. We don't necessarily see somebody as an addict because they're drinking. They're out with friends, they're drinking. It's totally normal, right? To be out with friends in a social environment and consuming alcohol. There's nothing weird about that. Whereas if you were in a social environment and you were shooting up, people might 
think something about that. Wonder if you're addicted, wonder if you have a problem, right? And so the thing about alcohol addiction is that it can hide so easily. And so I, I really did have this feeling that like I wanted to do something, you know, for people in alcohol recovery and that I, and maybe someday I will, you know, but, but that was like, that's, this was very early on. And I think it was me trying to find something to hold on to, mm-hmm. to, to put all this energy into, something to cope with. But the thing is, is that my brother wasn't just an alcoholic, and I don't want his entire memory to be tainted by the fact that he was an alcoholic. Because here's the thing, there's, n- there's no shame in, in being an addict. It's something that you have to confront and deal with, and I don't want to place shame on that. But I also don't want my brother's entire memory to be wrapped up in the fact that he was an alcoholic because he was so much more than that. And so I, you know, I, I kind of softened my feelings about that. I mean, I will never touch alcohol again as long as I live. And I wasn't planning to anyway, but now I'm definitely not. But it's, it's just, you know, that originally was like something that I found that I wanted to hold on to. And, and it wouldn't, you know, it really wouldn't be fair to Andrew, really, to, to hang my hat on alcoholism and become like some sort of like, I don't know, crusader of, of ending alcoholism. Mm because he was more than an alcoholic. But anyway, you know, I digress. I mean, they're understanding like the more of an alcoholic. I mean, there were means, I can even speak to this, there were means specifically in 2017, where like, it was just like, wake up, drank, you know, like, I I would like actually, you know, at this point, I had broken up with my girlfriend. So I had stopped going to class, but I still kept doing my radio show. And I would just like, finish whatever drink I had the night before and then go to the studio and bang out an episode. And it was like, it was almost like electric to me. Like I wasn't like drinking just to like be drunk, but I was like drinking so that I could have like a good show and not feel anything. And then I can get like the high from that, you know? And even now I'm like realizing it a lot, like, you know, even with kids, like their behavioral issues that it's like, man, it's not like there's anything specifically wrong with the kid, but like there is something externally that can be helped. And like, understanding that that like instead of saying like ah this person's an alcoholic and and shun them we were quick to do that and not really think about the why like what's going on and that's where a lot of my anger came from you know like i said before there's a very long history of alcohol addiction and abuse in my family and i felt like the blood was on the hands of generations of our family members that came before us that like the blood was on their hands you know i was saying to my therapist you can go back like a hundred years and i can pinpoint exactly where it began and who it began with and it probably began even before that but i don't know that far back in my family history you know it's like my grandmother um had an alcoholic father who beat his wife And then my grandmother grew up and married an alcoholic who beat her and then had three daughters with that man. And two out of the three are alcoholics, my mother being one of them. And then my mother went on to, you know, not my father, but when she was single, you know, and dating, she dated plenty of men who beat her and were alcoholics. And I grew up seeing that. Andrew grew up seeing that. Chris grew up seeing that. And our mother's own addiction and dependency on alcohol. We grew up seeing that. And I felt like the blood was on all of their hands. And it's a really fucked up way to look at it because here's the thing. 
like I said before, addiction is a disease and it's a disease for my mother just as much as it's a disease for her father and her grandfather and all of these other alcoholics that came before her. And, and to give Andrew grace and not her because he's dead and she's not isn't really fair. You know, they didn't have the tools to deal with it. And that's just unfortunate. And this is the collateral damage of that. You know, nobody in our ancestry died of alcoholism that I'm aware of, but Andrew did. And that's where a lot of the rage comes from. It just didn't feel fair. It's like, why does Andrew have to die for your sins? That That's how it really felt. You know, and it's easy to paint somebody as a hero when they're dead. There's this really silly Joyce Manor song uh, where there's a line in it where they say, um, I wish you had died in high school so you could be somebody's hero. And that's kind of how I feel about this. It's like, you know, a lot of times we, when people are dead, we have this like very skewed view of who they were as a person. And all that is to say that Andrew actually was that person. And I didn't appreciate it enough growing up because I was his bratty little sister and that's just how it goes. Um, but Andrew actually was as good of a person as as all the people who loved him believe he believed he was and is. And it just felt so unfair. You know, it's like Andrew would have never hurt a fly, but he had to die of alcoholism. And, you know, my grandfather who was an alcoholic who beat his wife, he didn't have to die for that. Andrew did. And, and all of that just turned into rage. And enraged that I still feel, but it, again, it's softened. And I think part of the reason it's softened is probably just exhaustion. Um, it's really exhausting to, to feel like that, you know? Well, that's a cycle of thinking. Cause I mean, you can't, there's no way out, you know? Cause you're, you're saying like, why did this ha like, why did Andrew have to die when your grandfather didn't? Like there, there is no logic in there because there's no connection to it. So it is like a cyclical thing where it's like you you're going to get exhausted. It's almost like you keep going back and forth. Well, OK, this happened, but it's not fair. OK, this happened, but it's not fair. Whereas like maybe there's like a center point, not center yeah. point where everything's OK, but like, you know, like what we're bringing up, like it's there is no reason and it's it's not fair. So mm -hmm. both are true. We don't have to jump from one truth to another. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And that's why I say that that thinking is not good for me. I recognize, you know, how unhealthy it is to think that way. And the first part of like dealing with those types of feelings is is to recognize that they're there and that they're not helpful. And that's just kind of the stage that I'm at, you know? It's all just cycles of abuse and trauma. My generation, me and Chris, we're the ones to break that cycle, hopefully. Someone was gonna have to at some point. It sucks that it has to be us. This is the life that we've been called to live. And it's just really hard to reconcile the fact that Andrew had to be the collateral damage in breaking that cycle. And, you know, again, I don't want to assign reason to it, but even though Chris and I were breaking the cycle in our own ways, we weren't recognizing it enough in Andrew. And unfortunately, it took him dying for us to really see a lot of the things that we did wrong. You know, not that anything we could have done would have saved his life. Andrew was an adult. Andrew made his own choices. If he was going to continue to drink, he was going to continue to drink. Us telling him not to would have changed nothing. If you want to change, that has to be your choice. And that was Andrew's choice, but he was struggling with it a lot. One of the things I've brought up in my grief group a lot about anger and even being angry at the deceased person is there was one day when I was up at Andrew's house after he died, obviously. We haven't cleaned out his house yet. That's a whole other thing. Um, but I was going through his stuff 
not really moving anything. I was more so just investigating. And again, this is another thing that I did that is me just trying to put the pieces together, you know, not necessarily to try to fix anything or find reason, but just to put the pieces of my brother together, the parts of him that I didn't get to know, you know. But in that, I, I found a bottle of pills. I don't know what the medication was called. I don't remember. I'm sure somebody in the audience will know. But it's a medication for alcohol withdrawal. And the directions on the bottle said to, I think, take one to three a day as needed for alcohol withdrawal. And so I look at the pill bottle. I see, you know, what the quantity prescribed was. And then I go and count the pills. And I find that there is only three or four missing. Hmm. I was like, if you had just kept taking this, maybe you would be here. But, and, and, th and I was angry at Andrew. And then I felt like a dick for being angry at my dead brother. But like, that's really how I felt. And again, I can't say for confidentiality reasons, but there were actually a few people in my grief group after I shared that, that echoed those same feelings. Um, because all of them had a sibling die and we're all around the same age. So their siblings, you know, are in their 20s or 30s. And so they all had out of order deaths. And, and they had examples to point to of having similar feelings about like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know, and, and Andrew is a, Andrew's a, a capital C Capricorn. All right. He was never going to do anything that he didn't want to do. He was never going to be told what to do. No one could have made him do anything. He, much like me, he was oppositionally defiant. And as much as he wanted to change and as much as he expressed that, he just couldn't. And he was not somebody that asked for help. He was somebody that helped others. When he died, he was my mother's primary caregiver because my mother's disabled, you know, and he just gave so much of himself that he didn't have anything left to give to himself. But all that is to say that he was his own person. It sucks that he's the collateral damage, but he didn't have to die for us to break that cycle. That's not what I'm saying at all, because that's not true. He didn't have to die. But it took that for me and Chris to really pin down what that cycle was and for us to really be like, oh, fucking God, mm. we, this has been right in front of our faces the whole time and we just didn't see it. When I have kids and when Chris has kids or doesn't, you know, I hope that we continue to break that cycle, but it's unfortunate the way that we had to learn that, you know, and we didn't need that to learn. I, I think, I think it was clear, but it didn't really smack us in the face or I'll just speak for myself. It really didn't smack me in the face until now. It really is like a difficult thing to have to be the one to break certain cycles, you know? It, it's it's really shitty to be like, oh, I get, you know, now it's, and I feel like a lot of people in our generation feel that way, right? Like there was this whole cycle with like Gen X and boomers and whatever, and these cycles that they started and now our generation and Gen Z have been called upon to clean up that mess, you know? Um, and it feels fucking terrible, right? It mm -hmm. sucks to have to be the ones to have to clean up that mess. And so not only am I feeling that from just like a overall like, political socioeconomic standpoint i'm also feeling that in my own personal life having to be the one to break this cycle of trauma that's gone on in my family for at least a hundred years but to not recognize it and to not talk about it is how these is how these cycles continue well that's a big one like talking about it being open about it because i feel like also people in our generation like are and maybe it's it's so much because we're like we were younger when this stuff was really going on but i feel like sometimes like 
you ever like find out something new about your family and it's like, oh man, like I wish I would have known that maybe 10 years ago. And that might've, I don't know, been pertinent information to know literally 10 years ago, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, one grieving is personal. And two, it's like your own life is personal. And even if you choose to live it for somebody else or for another purpose, that's still at the end of the day, your choice. So it really all mm -hmm. comes down to not choice, but rather doing what works for you. And if, if you, Again, yeah. if you find meaning in something, great. If you don't find meaning in, if you don't want to find meaning in something whack, you don't have to find meaning in something whack, you know, but you move, you move with it. And that like affects how you live. No, exactly. And the thing is that like, when you find meaning, you like, like the woman that you mentioned that um, the mothers against drunk driving, right? Um, the woman who started that, her doing that does not bring her son back to life. Right. You know, it saves a lot of people from enduring the trauma and the pain that she has, but it doesn't bring her son back. I think a lot of people go into this like meaning seeking, like the example of like that mother, as if it will fix something for them. It's not going to fix something for them. The thing that you wish you could fix is not fixable. And and maybe they find peace in knowing that they're helping other people. And that's like beautiful and wonderful. And hey, more power to you. And I would love for what happened to my brother to be the reason that somebody stops drinking, you know, to be the reason that somebody goes and gets help for whatever addiction they're dealing with. I would love that more than anything in this world. But I also understand that it's not going to bring Andrew back. And that's really the thing that you have to grapple with. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this early on in the episode, but like, I really hate the phrase like, better to have loved than to have lost than to have never have loved at all. Because mm -hmm. it's like, no, like I, you literally have that moment where it's like, no, maybe we didn't, like, maybe I could have lived without this loss, right? Maybe I could have been okay. But I think right. at the end of it, it's, it's one, a time thing. So it's like, yeah, you still have to wait. But at the same time, there's going to be like a point where you'll get somewhere and you'll be able to, I, I mean, I haven't had a loss like this or yours, but I've just dealt with being sad and, and things not going my way and, and alcoholism to a, to a degree and what really keeps me going now is that i can look over and see ash and it's like I, I i literally had to get stabbed to get ash you know so i had to break mm -hmm. my shoulder had to do that i had to drop out of school many times i had to do all these things to get ash because if i didn't do any of those things that like hurt me right i probably could have gotten a cat but i wouldn't have had ash and maybe the whole experience would be different but like this is this is where i am now and and there's like enough going right to say okay we can work with this and it is about moving forward you know not moving forward and all mm. the grief is all healed but moving forward like you're taking it with you it's coloring your steps make sure it doesn't color them negatively yeah and i guess that's that's an objective thing but subjectively you could let it color yourself negatively and if it makes you feel better then i don't know i'm not a therapist so go ahead i mean yeah uh, and, you know that reminds me of I, I went to a wedding when i was pretty young where um part of the wedding ceremony was the bride and groom faced away from each other and they took a moment to give gratitude to the path that brought them together whatever that path looked like you know and i really really liked that and i was pretty young when i went to this wedding but i really fucking loved that and i and i still do because it is it is like something where like 
everything that has happened in your life, it's, it's a part of you now. And that just is how it is. And it's not about saying that, well, it's okay that this happened because now I'm here. It's about accepting that this is the path that you've been handed. And these are the cards you were dealt. And it brought you some really good shit. It brought you some really terrible shit. Maybe a different path could have brought you even better shit. But it's a waste of time to think about that, you know? You know, it's like, I'm never going to be glad that this happened to me. I think that a lot of things, obviously I'm never going to be glad that this happened to me. No shit, Sophie, that was obvious. But there are a lot of things about myself that I can already see changing that I do like. I've become more sentimental and I don't mind that. I've become a lot more empathetic. I used to have a hard time with other people's pain other people getting emotional around me, I would get very uncomfortable. And now I'm experiencing the other side of it where I feel other people being uncomfortable with my pain and it doesn't feel very good. And so I don't wanna be that person anymore and I'm not going to be, um, or at least I'm gonna try not to be, but I, I've developed a lot of empathy and I'm just a lot more aware. I guess I'm, a, I think I've become a better friend to people too. I've become a better sister to Chris. I've become a better daughter to my parents. You know, I, I check in on my friends a whole lot more than I used to because I know that I didn't check in on Andrew enough. And that's one of my biggest regrets because, you know, they're your sibling. They're always going to be there. They're not going to die. They're not going to die until you're both very old, right? So if you, you know, blow off a text or a call from them, eh, whatever. And I don't do that anymore. I don't think that way anymore. It, it's all precious to me. One of those things is like, before I get off the phone with my dad or my mom or, or Mario, or before Mario leaves the house, you know, I always make sure to tell them that I love them. Me and Mario could be in a fight, for instance, for example. Maybe we're in a fight and we're super fucking angry at each other. But if he leaves the house, I don't care how mad I am. I'm still going to tell him I love him before he walks out the door. Why? Because who's to say if he even comes back? He could get in a car accident. Any number of things could happen, right? And I think those are positive changes. And I can see that. But but I would still consider myself to be an early grief. I'm still going through a lot of emotions. And, you know, I have nightmares every fucking night. I have a lot of bizarre dreams. I have a lot of nightmares, but they've just become amplified. Ironically enough, and this is a sidebar, I used to have nightmares constantly about one of my brothers dying. I don't have those nightmares anymore. Wonder why. But, you know, it, it's... I feel the weight of it every day. And I'm constantly looking for things to just like hold on to about him. Like I never used to be a sentimental person. Birthday cards, for instance. I used to throw those out a month after my birthday. You know, my birthday's February 12th, March 12th. Those are out, they're gone. But I did keep one birthday card and I'm so glad I did. <laughs> Uh, I kept a birthday card. It's the last birthday card I ever received from Andrew and I didn't throw it away and I'm really glad that I didn't. Especially early on, I became like obsessed with like, like when I was in his house, I was looking for anything that had his handwriting on it. You know, evidence that he had like been there. It's like written word on a page was something that I became very fixated on because it's like their hand was there. You know, that's their writing. I, I have a pair of his running shoes from when he was a runner in high school that like, it's my prized possession. If I save nothing from a house fire, I will at least save that and my cat, but you know, the shoes too. And even to the point where like, sometimes like we have this neighbor that I swear to God is literally my brother. If my brother had lived to be 45, like it, it's literally him, like everything about him. It, it's like Andrew. And I got really fixated on that. I was like, that's, that's Andrew, you know, cause Mario, he, he never met Andrew. And so 
I just kept like telling him over and over. I was like, that's Andrew. Like, I feel like you just met him. Like the clothes, like Andrew always had clothing covered in paint stains and always had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he would never wash his hair. And like that guy, that was Andrew. And it's like all these little things that I, I hold on to now that I become really sentimental about. And I never used to be like that. And I'm happy to be more like that now. And, and I will also say that the reason uh, our episode 36 never came out is because in that episode, that was about a week before Andrew died, I think we recorded that. And I was talking about how I had just seen him in the ICU and that I thought that he was doing better and that I thought that he was going to pull through. And I could not bring myself to finish editing it because it's just really weird to hear yourself in the past like that, you know? You know what I mean, Mar or I yeah. almost called you Mario, Bronny. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get. It just felt weird. And so, yeah, I mean, we took this big hiatus. We haven't posted an episode since I think March. It's interesting because I pour a lot of my pain into, you know, creative stuff, obviously, but I just didn't have it in me. Like, I didn't care anymore. I was like, who gives a fuck? Like, talking about, like, mental health and blah, 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 blah. That's it's so, it's, what's the point? What's the fucking point? Who cares? It doesn't matter because my brother's dead. And I found myself resorting to that thinking a lot. Like, it doesn't matter because my brother's dead. And I am starting to get the energy back to where I feel like I have that spark again. But it, it's still dull and it, it's coming back slowly. And I'm glad that it's coming back. But like, yeah, that was that was a big thing too, was just the feeling like, who fucking cares? That's a big one. I think that's something else that, that people who, who generally have anxiety go through too, that just like feeling of like, well, I'm not doing this anymore. Like for anything. Like it's not like specifically like I'm not doing life anymore. It's like I'm I'm tired of, of this, you know, and it's once it's not it could be one specific thing or it could be like a, a group of things. I would always find myself whenever mm -hmm. I felt that way and anxiety like sad because it was like, man, I hate that this thing that I used to enjoy is like just feels like nothing inside my brain mm -hmm. so that in itself is is a task to to overcome it's like you know just the apathy and i'm still trying to like overcome it like truly because it's like i just because andrew's dead doesn't mean i have to like i should stop you know and not to say stop living i mean yes but not in the like you know be dead sense but in the sense that like i can't stop existing I can't stop being the person I was then like I'm not the person I was before anymore like I'm it changes you yeah things really just don't feel the same but yeah things don't feel the same you know maybe the stuff that I did before some of it I just I've lost a lot of interest in a lot of things but I can't just stop doing things in general I can't just spend the rest of my life like feeling sorry for myself and not doing anything it's like I have to put that energy somewhere once I have that energy you know and it's a it's a big thing to overcome just like the who cares feelings you know again a lot of people express that in my grief support group they're like who fucking cares you know and I feel that way about a lot of stuff and in some of it for better some of it for worse some of it is just like it's it's not the end of the world. You know, things that would have like really rocked me before, eh, whatever. It's like, eh, it's not as bad as my brother dying. And that's an interesting place to be. It's not necessarily a bad place. And it, and I think, it, you know, I, I sound really calm talking about this, I feel like. I don't know, Ronnie, you can tell me if that's not true. I sound really calm. Fairly calm, yeah. Yeah, it's like a weird numbness that you get, that I, at least, I'm not going to speak for other people. 
at least for me, this like weird nothingness that that I've started to feel about it. And it I don't like that feeling yeah. either, you know, not having an emotional response or like not, you know, not crying every time I talk about it. It like it, it doesn't that doesn't necessarily feel better. I'll say that it's exhausting to be sad, you know, and I, I think I've gotten to a point where it's just like, I'm just I don't think I've accepted it. But I think it's just like, I'm so used to telling the story now. And I'm so used to thinking about it constantly that it's almost like slowly desensitizing my brain to it. And I don't want to be desensitized to it. Mm. Like, I don't want to get used to it. I don't want to forget. I don't want a day to go by that I don't think about Andrew. And it doesn't, but it's just like this weird, overwhelming, like numbness that that I've started to feel at a point. Part of that could also be the medications I'm on. I'll jump into that a little bit. I, uh, you know, since the last time before I was taking 20 milligrams of Lexapro a day, I'm now down to 10 and I actually like it. You know, I still feel like the effects of it where like emotional stuff doesn't, it doesn't hit as deep, mm -hmm. but I'm still able to feel things. And I really like that. And it wasn't until I, I downdosed my Lexapro at my psychiatrist's recommendation that I was like, holy shit, I miss having feelings and emotional responses to things. Like this feels good. Yeah, uh, I still have enough to like really like keep me stable but it's nice to feel something you know it gets really frustrating when you get to a point where you're just not feeling anything for days on end and I've had like periods of time where I've just like haven't felt anything for days and Mario would even say like you haven't brought up Andrew in like a week or two like how are you doing and I'm just like I don't know I don't know and now it's like it's every day it's like there is like a pang there's a sting but at the same time, it's like I'm I'm okay with it being there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. I don't have an explanation for that. Yeah, I don't think you need an explanation. It's for you. Not like it's for you. Like, well, I guess like that. Like, you know, it's for you. It doesn't need to be the reason. doesn't need to be the purpose. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it's, it's coexisting. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's a good start. It's a good place to be. It is. It is. And, you know, one of the things that has really driven me to, like, keep doing creative things, even through this when I haven't felt like it, is that I know that Andrew would be really disappointed in me if I just stopped making stuff, you know, like... Until, up until the day that he went into the hospital, he was still building shit. Mm. Like, he would build all types of shit. His house is covered in, like, all these weird shelves that he made out of random shit. Like, random pieces of wood and concrete and scrap metal and granite and all this fucking shit. And he was just constantly building stuff. And there's a shelf in his entryway that we determined by going through his phone and, and stuff was the last shelf he ever built. And he built that shelf less than a week before going into the hospital like up until the very end as sick as he was and he was very sick he was still fucking making shit and I think he would want that for me too and I want to do right by him you know I can't like you know transform my pain into anything by making stuff with it but I can at least express it and you know like leading up to us sitting down to record this episode, I was like really looking forward to like setting up the mic again and like going through the whole thing. And it's just about pushing yourself to keep going and to keep doing things, I think. At least that's what I have found to, to just keep like self-improving. And I'm in therapy twice a week. Um, I go to my grief support group 
every other week and I've been doing a lot of reading and things like that and a lot of drawing and I'm just doing my best and you know that's not to say that in the future I won't have like a full week where I'm just in bed inconsolable for days on end it might happen but I'm doing what I can you know there are so many other routes we could go down here you know there's the there's the addiction side of it there's the self-harmy aspect of addiction there's like all of the demons that my brother was dealing with that really like led to to, to this outcome. But that stuff isn't important, I think. I think the important thing is that he was my brother and that I loved him and I still do love him very much and it's fucked up what happened and it's not fair. But to do that would be to just, you know, again, try to make meaning, try to find reason in something where there is none. I'm glad to be getting back on the horse. I don't know about you, Ronnie, but but I sure am. Yeah, I actually, um, so I hadn't written, I hadn't made any art uh since january actually um and the other day i wrote a poem and i was like wow this feels good an emotion got through and i think ultimately like when you're when you're not sitting in your sadness but like sitting in your sadness you know you you have to allow yourself to feel it and even more importantly you have to be able to let go of those feelings when the time is right like you know there's that uh, that Mm -hmm. saying where like you have to allow your body to experience the comings and goings of emotions because that's what makes life kind of worth living and i would definitely agree and it's really hard when you're taking medication to naturally experience those things so the fact that yeah. you you were i don't know your your 2021 has been that experience is fucked up yeah it's 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 it's, it's, it's rough it's rough that that was it but it's you're feeling that's life you're alive yeah i have to feel because andrew can't anymore you know mm-hmm. and that's kind of the whole circle of life right i mean a lot of like the pain i have felt and when i say pain i mean like physical pain like i i feel like i can't breathe sometimes like i feel like i am going to die sometimes i cry so hard i feel like i'm going to die like i'm terrified it's it's almost like a panic attack it's not quite but it's it's close to one but like a lot of it it's just uh, it's been a while since i've released that much emotion Obviously, a lot of that, those tears were for Andrew, but a lot of it was just a lot of pain that just hadn't surfaced in a really long time. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I'm dealing with now that I really hadn't coped with before. I mean, I alluded to before the my mom having abusive men in her life when I was growing up, and that's something that I've had to confront. And there's a lot of shit that I've had to confront and a lot of flaws in myself that I've become more aware of that. And, and I don't know, it's all just like a culmination. It felt like a culmination. It's like last year, was like 2020 was so fucking bad this year is worse but 2020 was so fucking bad Mm -hmm. and i think that there was just all of this built up shit inside of me that i just hadn't really reconciled with and it's all coming to the surface now um one of the things i will say though is i don't think that I would have survived 2020 if it wasn't for Andrew. I mean, I can point to a handful of times where he sat on the phone with me for four, five, six hours while I just cried my eyes out. And I just remember vividly him telling me like, why would you want to throw life away? Life is so beautiful. I mean, think about beaches and sunsets and running your hands through someone you love's hair. That That's what makes life 
worth living. Why would you ever want to throw that away? Mm. It sticks with me, dude, especially now. And yeah, he was a much better brother to me than I was a sister to him. In closing, I think I'm going to share a poem that Andrew wrote one year, almost to the day before he died. I found this pretty soon after he passed and I've talked myself down from a few panic attacks reading this. And so I just wanted to share it because I, I really love it. And it is a really good example of of who Andrew was and the type of person he was. For some context, um, like I, I think I said before, he was a track runner in high school and a cross country runner. And so there's some allusions to that in this, but in moments of sheer terror, like what I'm faced with, remain calm, remain calm, remain calm. I grind my knuckles deep into the ground as I take a sprinter's stance. My knuckles begin to bleed as I dig them in and I'm covered in rock dust. The gun goes off and I destroy my opponent. I like that. I especially like the the combination between the the track dust and blood. Like that combination, that's that's good. That's good. I like that. Yeah, because the the track dust is red. I don't know if that's the reason why you pointed that out, but I really that wasn't it. even. But that makes it even. Temp- that's that's pivotal. That's a pivotal line. That's good. It's heat. It's fire. I know. I wish I could write like like he could. I just don't have the patience for it. But anyway, this has been the return episode. I don't know what our next episodes are gonna look like, but we're back. We're back in action and. Happy to be back on the mic again. But anyway, this has been the Pretty Girl Pill Club. My name is Sophie. My co-host is Ronnie. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Pretty Girl Pill Club. You can follow us on Instagram at Pretty Girl Pill Club and on Twitter at PGPC Pod. As always, you'll be able to find our full show notes, including links to anything we referenced at pgpcpod.com. Pretty Girl Pill Club is a production of Public Notice LLC, hosted by myself, Sophie Collis, and Ronnie Williams.